please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 42. We return to our study of Genesis after a few weeks. I'm going to read the text. It is a long text, not as long as some that we've had in the book of Genesis, but it's been two or three weeks, so let's read the text again to remind ourselves. Genesis chapter 42. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. The ten bro- Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was on the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. He said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had had about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, And behold, the youngest brother is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. And Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested, and by the life of Pharaoh you will not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, but a life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Verse 17. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in prison, in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, saying, 
Did I not tell you? Do not sin against a boy, and you would not listen. Now comes their reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bowed him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money. And behold, it was in the mouth of his sack that he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us, and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men, we're not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I would know that you were honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give you your brother to you, and you may trade in my land. Now, it came about as they were emptying their sacks, that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my care and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Father, as we continue to worship you and your goodness and your glory and in your greatness, we give you praise that. You would send a Savior, Jesus Christ, to seek and to save us. And we give you glory, Lord, that you died and rose again to give us salvation and redemption from our sins. We praise you for that. And now as we're in your word, help us to understand this text, Lord, and use this text by the power of your spirit to drive us to woo us closer and closer to Christ, Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever had a time in your life, and maybe you're in this time now, where you're not 
that close to Christ. There was a time, perhaps, maybe when you were really close to God. You were really close to the Lord, but different things happened. Maybe it was purposefully. Maybe it kind of seemingly unintentionally happened, but you're not following hard after the Lord anymore. For whatever reason it is, you've you've backed off from God. Perhaps you're resentful. Perhaps you have bitterness. Perhaps there's sin in your life that you haven't dealt with, and you've really backed away from the Lord. Have you had a time like that in your life? I think most of us, to one degree or another, have. Or maybe you're in that place now. Certainly in the future, you you may be tempted to respond to life, to trials, to God, to sin, in that fashion. That is, sooner or later, there is a temptation, and maybe, again, you've been there or you're there to not earnestly pursue God. Psalm 63 talks about earnestly, earnestly, I will pursue you. Even early in the morning, we're to seek God and his righteousness. But there can be a temptation, and it can happen in our lives at one time or another, where for different reasons, we just back away from the Lord. And for some people, it can be not simply a week or a month. It, it could be years. And for the brothers of Joseph, you may remember, for Judah, at least 22 years, perhaps all their life. These brothers, these sons of Israel, we know their lives, and most of them, if not all of them, except for Joseph and Benjamin, and perhaps Reuben and Judah, to a degree, are really ungodly men. They professed to be of God. They professed to know Yahweh. Perhaps they do know Yahweh in their mind, but do they know Yahweh, the Lord, in their heart? They're called the very people of God, and yet they committed literal atrocities. If you remember Levi and Simeon, there are people that we know, and again, I hope not, but maybe some of you profess to know the Lord, but you're not really following the Lord Not truly. There's a lot of sin in your life that you haven't dealt with. This passage, Genesis 42, speaks to that issue because as we've read this now twice, we see that God is pursuing the sons of Israel. God is pursuing the sons of Jacob. God is pursuing the brothers of Joseph to finally bring them back to himself. He wants to restore them, that they can know him and be fruitful and have the fullness of God. Who here would say that they want the fruitfulness and fullness of God in their lives? I know every believer wants the fullness and fruitfulness of God in their lives. This passage is going to tell us how we have that. It's going to tell the nation Israel that would have received the the Pentateuch, that would have received the, the book of Genesis as they were marching around in the wilderness, about to go into the promised land, and the first generation rejected God, basically, to a large degree. At least they rejected that that promise of God and didn't have courage to enter into the land, only Joshua and Caleb. 
in a certain sense then, they even needed to be restored to the Lord. And so we've looked at this passage. Part one was about two or three weeks ago, and we said the main theme was this. God in his good providence seeks to restore his people. So then humble yourself and get right with God, and you'll have fruitfulness and fullness. This passage primarily is saying to you this morning, to me this morning, that God in his good providence seeks to restore his people. So then humble yourself and get right with God, and that will bring fruitfulness and fullness in your life. Our whole society, not just America, but it seems all around the whole earth, is actually not evolving. We are what? Devolving. If anything, it's not evolution, it's devolution. We're falling apart as as a culture, as a society. We need to rather, instead of have a type of devolution, we need to have restoration being restored to God. And so that's what we find in this chapter. And, and we said there's many pathways. There's Jesus Christ, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man may come to the Father except through him. But in terms of being restored to God, there are different things in our life that we need to look at, to consider. And under his grace, under Christ, that we need to change. For example, you may remember part one, we talked about integrity and and honesty, and if you paid attention when we were reading over and over and over again, it talks about honesty. You know, we're not spies. We're not spies. Our brother has has died, and and Joseph is. I'm going to give you a test. I want to be sure that you're being truthful. And it's one of the themes, a major theme in this chapter is, if these brothers of Joseph want to be restored to God and really have his fruitfulness and fullness in their life, they're going to have to what? Not be liars. We're not saved because we don't lie. We're saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But if we want to be really in the will of God and see his blessing upon his life, we're not going to be liars. That's one of the pathways. One of the interconnecting pathways. All of these different character attributes, they all interact with one another. And we saw four of them last time. We're going to see several more, four more this morning. And I'm not going to go over the first four. You can get those notes. I'll listen to that sermon. We're just going to dive in and look at number five. And again, these are different characteristics, attributes of this person that wants to say, I want to be restored to God. I want to be always pursuing God to see his fruitfulness and fullness in my life. So the fifth interconnecting pathway, and again, interconnecting because these are not individual attributes left in isolation because I can say, I no longer lie. But I could be not humble. I could be proudful, prideful. I could boast and not lying. Well, if I'm not a humble person, then God is going to make sure that I am humbled, right? God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So all of these are interconnecting pathways. And so if you want to in your notes, you can say, one, if this is the first time you've uh, 
heard this little series, Restoration to God, but really it's point number five. The fifth interconnecting pathway is this. Fear God. Fear God. God in his good providence seeks to restore you to himself that you might experience his fullness and fruitfulness. God wants to restore people to himself, not to crush them, but to bless them. How does that happen? We fear God. You can see this in verse 18. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live for I fear God. Joseph feared God, but by and large, the brothers did not fear God. I think this is why Joseph is here and why it has this little clause, I fear God. Because Joseph is being used as a foil against the brothers of Joseph. You can look at verse 28. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, not, not simply, what is this that the Lord of the land, that the second in command of Egypt has done to us? Right? They're finding this money that they paid to Joseph. They, they didn't know it was Joseph. Like the vice president, the, the vice emperor of Egypt paid him money. Well, that money is given back to them in the sack. They open up the sack and they're trembling to one another. Look at verse 28. They don't say, what is this that the second in command of Egypt has done? But rather they say, what is this that God has done? They know who's in charge. It's not Pharaoh, it's God. God is doing something. And throughout this whole context, already they're bringing up what happened over 22 years ago. What we did then was wrong, and now is God coming after us for that? Joseph says in verse 18, Do this and live, for I fear God. Joseph had this fear of God, but the other ten brothers did not. And now maybe in in Judah, because you remember Judah earlier, at the end of his section was it? 37, 38, at the end of his section, he says that Tamar is more righteous than me. So maybe Judah is beginning to grow in the fear of God. We'll see Reuben. Reuben, even when he betrayed Joseph, even then he has some some questions. And we'll see even here he's making some small steps. But by and large, these brothers of Joseph, they, they had no fear of God. There was no awe and alarm of God. For most of their life, there was no woe and wonder of God in their life. Remember what they did to Joseph. They kidnapped him, threw him in a pit. That's torture. They were willing to murder him. But then they realized that they could murder Joseph, but they wouldn't make a profit. It would be more wise, I'm saying that in quotes, it would be more wise to, to traffic their little brother than it would be to murder him. So the older brothers engaged in child trafficking. That's what they did. And they sold him. Can you fear God and do what the brothers of Joseph did? Certainly not. Now these were... The children of Jacob, of Israel. This was the group, the people that God chose to represent him. 
And yet they had no fear of God. They had no woe and wonder, awe and alarm of who God truly is. And so I believe that this is here in this passage to emphasize that it may be now that these brothers of Joseph are beginning to realize God is in control. God is doing something. We thought we got away with our sin, but it appears that we may not have gotten away with our sin. You may be here today saying, nobody knows about my sin, except for who? The person that you are the most accountable to knows everything. Everything. We can't get away with our sin. I can't. God knows. He knows. And if there is fear of God, truly, maybe we wouldn't have done that sin in the first place. I believe this is what this passage is pressing even the nation Israel with as they read this. But, of course, it's a reoccurring theme that we see in the Old Testament. You're very familiar with this. You can look at Proverbs chapter 9. Verse 10, you may remember, I believe we went through the book some years ago, The Joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Did the brothers of Joseph have wisdom? They lacked wisdom. Why? They didn't fear God. I think what is especially Instructive for me is Psalm 34, and I keep going back to it over and over again because I think it's picturesque, at least for me, but also it's convicting for me, Psalm 34, verse 8, because notice how it talks about the fear of God paralleling the fear of God with delighting in God. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, a taste and see that the Lord, that, that Yahweh is good. He's good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. God is good. The one that goes to him and will take refuge, hides in God, finds their security, their hope, their anchor in God, because God is good. But then right after that, parallel to that, it says, Oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no Want. You know, Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, he shall not lack. Or there is no want. That's what Psalm 23, 1 says. But another way to say that, in a certain sense, you love the shepherd God, but you also what? Fear him. And when you do that, there is a fruitfulness and a fullness in your heart. Even in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is about transitoriness, emptiness, that life is a vapor. You remember the word hevel over and over and over again. Solomon says life is hevel. Life is transitory. It's a vapor. It's a mist. Here today, gone tomorrow. Everything changes. Everything dies. Nothing's the same. We're just like smoke that's here today and vanishes. And then at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, when he seeks to sum up everything that the whole book says, Ecclesiastes 12.13, he says, the conclusion, the summary of this book is this. When all has been heard, fear God. Fear God. Now, we may be tempted to think, well, that's the Old Testament. 
That's not the New Testament because in the, in the New Testament, 1 John 4, I think it's verse 18, says, the perfect love casts out fear. And of course, that's, that's what the Bible says. So, so it's true. There is a sense in which as a believer, I, I don't have this servile fear of bondage toward God. With If I make a mistake and I said, boom, he's going to strike me dead. I, I don't have that kind of a fear anymore because I'm, I'm in the Savior. I, I'm in Christ and I have his perfect righteousness in my life. But there is still this holy fear of God that we're called to have even in the New Testament. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In the fear of God. Or, you know, at, at times, and I, I'm not trying to rebuke anybody, but there are times when some of you might say, Tom, can we have a sermon on, on marriage or, or parenting? Every sermon is a sermon on marriage. Every sermon is a sermon on parenting. It is. Because <laughs> if you don't fear God, you can't have a healthy marriage. If you don't fear God, you can't be a good parent. And I even take that from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, which says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then out of that, it says, wives do this, husbands do this, parents do this, children do this. The key, one of the keys to the Christian life is fearing your Savior. You have to fear the Lamb. You have to fear the Messiah. We, we love God. We cherish God. Back to Psalm 34, 8 and 9. But we also fear the shepherd. We have this woe and this wonder, this awe and this alarm. First Peter 1.17 even says that we are called to conduct ourselves in fear. So it's taught in the Old Testament, it's taught in the New Testament, and we see that Joseph had this. The brothers of Jacob, sorry, the brothers of Joseph did not. How do you know if you fear God? How do you know if you fear God? When you're alone, do you sin more or less? When you're alone, do you take the opportunity to sin more? then you don't fear God. <laughs> Maybe you think he's a genie. He's only there if other people are there. When you're with ungodly people, do you sin more? Then you must not fear God. I'm not saying there's less temptation. When you're by yourself or you're with ungodly people, there can be more temptation. But because you fear God, because he is greater than a cyclone that's blowing everywhere, and you're right there by this cyclone, it's, the cyclone is so beautiful, you, you even want to go inside and stand in the middle. But it's so scary, it's so awesome, it's ominous, and, and it's wonderful, and God is much greater than that. And so you fear him. And so that causes you to flee sin because God is wonderful, but he's also filled with woe because he's far, but he's near. He's holy and he's gentle. 
Well, how do you grow in this fear of God? You know, reading the book, The The Joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges, it's a very great book, very helpful book. I think, biblically, the only way to, or the main way to grow in the fear of God is you have to do what? You have to spend time with him. If you don't know him, you're not going to fear him. If you don't know God, you're not going to fear him. How do you know God? You read your Bible. You pay attention as you read your Bible and you pray. You talk to God and you talk to God about everything and you worship God. And you practice that throughout the whole week. That's how you know God. And then you grow in the fear of God. You worship him. And especially during difficult times of life. Oh, taste God and see that he's good. How blessed all those who take refuge in him. Those who fear him, there is no lack of want. You, there, there is no lack of, oh Lord, I, I don't have this, I don't have this. You know who God is. And you're filled with wonder and woe at him. Because you know him. If we want to see fruitfulness and fullness in our life, we want to be near God. If we want to be as near to God as we can, we should be growing in our fear of God, right? I should fear God and love God, but I should fear God more now than when I first became a Christian. It's a holy fear. It's an evangelical fear. But I should have this heart that's filled with their awe and and alarm, woe, and wonder of all that God is for me in Christ. There's also this further, there is this six interconnecting pathway that we see in this passage. The fifth one was this fear of God. We see that. Joseph is used, I believe, as this contrast to the brothers of Joseph, the sons of Jacob. But additionally, there is a sixth interconnecting pathway. And that is, you deal with your conscience. You deal with your guilty conscience. Have you ever been tormented by your conscience? Have you ever been reading a book at night or watched a movie at night, but yet there's that drip from the water faucet? Drip, drip. For me, if I'm reading a book or even if I'm watching something on TV, even if it's just it's just super quiet, drip, drip, I, ha- I have to turn that off. I can't stand it. it. It really bothers me. Drip, drip, drip. And that can be like a guilty conscience. You've done something. It was bad. You haven't dealt with it. And in the back of your mind, it's drip, drip. I can just ignore it. I'll just ignore it. It's going to be okay. (laughs) What's going to happen? Drip, drip, drip. If we don't deal with our guilty conscience, it's going to hurt us. It's going to hurt our walk with God. Again, we can see this in this passage. And again, think that Israel, they are receiving the book of Genesis. And as a group of people, did they do well after they got out of the promised land? 
Thank you, Lord, for our redemption. Let's sing a song with, with Deborah about the great wonders that God has done. Wasn't too long after that. Let's make a God in our own image. They were guilty and uh, of great sin. And I think God is instructing them and wooing them and pushing them and pleading with them as they would have read this to see that these brothers of Joseph, they also were guilty. They, they were guilty of gross sin and their conscience was sealed, uh, seared and they needed to get right with God. So the brothers had a guilty conscience before God. Listen to James Montgomery Boyce. He has a good three-part commentary series in the book of Genesis. He says this about the conscience of the brothers of Joseph. Quote, Something like that happens when the Spirit of God begins to blow upon sin-hardened consciences. At first, there is a mere trickle of recognition of wrong done. But as the breath of God grows warmer, the trickle becomes a torrent of remorse and confession. And the ice of rebellion melts. And the miracle of forgiveness, cleansing, and new life engulfs the tender soul. Further, he says, What did God use to bring about this quickening of conscience and confession? He had used the pain of material want to bring the ten brothers to Egypt. End quote. Montgomery Boyce is saying that the ordeal that these brothers of Joseph went to, uh, went through is breaking them, making them to remember all that they had done to their little brother. And you can see this in the text, even way back, if you remember, in verse 1, as soon as Jacob says, look, there's grain in, in Egypt. Not one of the brothers says, let's go, but rather they're like looking at each other. That's where we sold a little brother to. I'm not going there. Already it seems their guilty conscience is, is becoming stirred up. They can see verses 21 and 22. They said to one another, what? Truly we are what? Guilty. We're guilty. He begged us not to do this. We didn't listen. End of verse 22. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They realized that they were very guilty. And so that's why you have in verse 28, I think, them saying, not not Pharaoh, not, not the second in charge of Egypt, but in verse 28, who's going to get us? Who's doing this to us? Who put us in prison for three days? Who has our big brother Simeon? Who's doing this? God. God's doing this. And it's because their conscience is guilty. The, the New Testament talks about the conscience in a very clear way in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 2 talks about the conscience. Every person because they're made in the image of God, whether a believer or unbeliever, every person has a conscience. Now, that conscience is not perfect because we're fallen, because we're sinful. But Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, talk about the conscience. 
Listen to this passage. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having a law are a law to themselves. In this, in that, they show the work, he doesn't say the law, but the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God would judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The conscience every person has, unbeliever or unbeliever, is this instrument or apparatus which basically either accuses you, warns you, or defends you. What you're doing is bad. What you're doing is good. What you think is is bad, that's wrong. What you're thinking is good. Every person has this. This is what Scripture says, and it can be very black and white. Now, this conscience can, you can look at Romans 1, verse 18. This conscience together with God's natural revelation can be suppressed and pushed down, and we can not listen to our conscience, and then it gets hardened, and it gets seared, and it gets defiled, and our conscience can be misinformed and informed correctly. But everybody has this, and their inner person and this inner man, this faculty that God gives that says, yeah, that's not good. What you did is wrong. Uh, what you did was good, even though people don't understand what, what you did was good. But again, it, it's not perfect. And we have to always inform it and, and feed it God's word to maintain this clear, this healthy conscience. It always must be guided by the word of God. But everybody has this conscience in their heart of hearts. That's why when you share the word of God, that's why there are some people that are are convicted and they know that what you're saying is true. Because the spirit of God, but even being made in the image of God, inside of them, they're not atheists. They believe in God. But they're rejecting that very image that they were made in. And even their conscience, if it's not yet too seared and hardened, is agreeing with what you're saying from the Bible. But what can happen, and we see this in the lives of these brothers, is that after days and months and years go by, the conscience can get really hard. It can get really hard. And it's only at times when something happens that reminds you of the sin that you committed, that your conscience again comes back. How many of you have had a sore, infected tooth? Have you ever had a sore, infected tooth? I've had sore, infected teeth. And there are times when I think I can just manage it and I'll be fine. You know? Because it kind of comes and goes. If I have maybe... Uh, ice cream or something cold, then maybe it can inflame, but I'll take clover. You know, you can take the oil clover and just rub it back here. Cloves. Thank you. Lisa's saying, not clover, cloves. Cloves. And you can put that on your gum and and it kind of numbs everything here. What happens, and I'm saying this from experience, what happens if that's all you do with that infected tooth? What will happen? Do you know what could happen? You could get a heart attack. A friend of mine 
had really, really bad teeth. Really bad teeth. Worse than, than mine were. He had really bad teeth. So bad that eventually he had to have all of his teeth pulled. Do you know why? They were so bad and so infected that it did what? Many of your teeth canals, they have different, uh, I don't know if it's with the nerves or the arteries or veins, but they can even go down into your cardiac system. He had a heart attack. He almost died. He almost, his heart, he had a heart attack because he had an infected tooth. How does this relate to our conscience? Because at times there can be sin that we've done in our life and the Holy Spirit's convicting you, your conscience is convicting you, you ignore it. You've grieved the Holy Spirit of God. Your conscience then is grieved and it's hardened. And it's like this tooth. You know what? If I just ignore it, it's going to be okay. That's stupid. It's not going to be okay. And ignoring your guilty conscience is probably worse than ignoring an infected tooth. I think so. And this is what God is doing with the brothers of Joseph. He's putting them through difficult times in order for them to understand. It's been over 20 years and you haven't gotten right with me or your dad about what happened. You need to get right. You need to make it right. How do we have this clean conscience, an unhindered conscience? It can be difficult, but we have to do business with God, right? So Scripture says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to purify us from all unrighteousness. We say, Lord, I was wrong. I, I, I sinned. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. Lord, I was wrong. It was sin. Forgive me. That's how we get our conscience right. I am guilty. Psalm 51 I deserve hell for many sins, for all my sin. For one sin, I deserve hell. Forgive me, Lord. And then if we sin against other people, then we go to that person and we say what? Even if it's been years. Look, I, I did this. I'm convicted by it. I have been convicted by it. It was comp- incredibly wrong. It wasn't just a mistake. It's Don't tell me it, it's okay. <laughs> it's not Okay. It's a sin, and it was wrong. It was bad. It was evil. It was wicked. Forgive me. And be humble. Don't defend yourself. Forgive me. I was wrong. And this kind of confession, where it's not like this justifying confession, but just no excuse, I was wrong, it was a sin, forgive me. It's this healing elixir for your soul. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this forgiveness. Thank you for washing me and cleansing me, Lord. Thank you that you take my sin, you cast it behind your back, you toss it, it says in the book of Micah 7, Micah chapter 7, you toss it to the depths of the ocean and then you trod upon it. And all that's by the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. If you want to have a life filled with fruitfulness and and really faithfulness and fullness and really walk with God and be close to God. You're going to fear him. And then as you fear him, you're going to deal with what? Your guilty conscience. Don't have a guilty conscience. You don't have to live that way. None of us are perfect. Only Jesus was perfect. Only person that was perfect. When we have a guilty conscience, we go to God. God, forgive me. That was so bad. Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Go to that person. 
Lord, uh, person, you know, Lisa, forgive me what I said or what I did. That, that was bad. That was wrong. Thank you, honey, for forgiving me. Thank you. Well, there's a seventh pathway. Just two more, and these will be a little bit quicker. Just two more. The seventh connecting pathway is take small steps. Take small steps. Look at Reuben and look at what Reuben says. And I know none of you would say what Reuben is going to say. (laughs) Look at verse 37. So Reuben is wanting to rescue Simeon from imprisonment. And to do that, he has to take Benjamin. So he's asking his father's permission to take Benjamin. And Jacob is saying, no, <laughs> no, not going to happen. No way am I ever going to give you one of my sons to go to Egypt. No, it's not happening, Reuben. Then Reuben says, look, I have this idea. If it doesn't work out, you can put my two sons to death. You can kill them. Fathers, what would you do if Reuben said that in front of you? I, if I had this mic, I would hit him right in the forehead. I'd just go, what are you saying? That's evil. Don't say that, Reuben. What in the world? That's, that's crazy. Right? You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. I hope his sons aren't there. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't agree to this, Dad. <laughs> no way. What in the world? How could he say this? You know, earlier he was talking about how they were guilty, right? Basically, he said, yeah, we're guilty. We've done these bad things. I warned you guys. He didn't do anything about it. But he he did bring it up that what they were doing was wrong way back when they threw Joseph into the pit. I think that Reuben, still at this point, is a product of his own culture. That he's trying kind of to manipulate his dad, right? He's trying to manipulate his dad and at the same time saying something that is just ungodly and worldly and this may have been something that they would have said in their culture. And and it's wrong for him to say that. However, we have to ask, why is this there? Why is this little part of the story here in the text? I don't think it's simply to show how sinful Reuben was. I think that's part of it. But also for us to see he is making actually a teeny step. He's actually trying to do what? To do something. With Joseph, he was like, don't do this. We can make money, Reuben. We we, we can make money and then we can divide the money. Well, just don't murder him. As the old, as one of the older brothers, as any brother, what should he have done? He should have jumped down in the pit, to, taken Joseph out of the pit, and say, "By my life, you will not do this to my brother. By my life." Here he's making a little bit of a step by saying, "Simeon's in prison. I want to protect Benjamin." I will protect Simeon by going and get him, and I will protect your son, or that is that which is of most value to me will be forfeited. He's saying, I will, and I need to do something. Even if it's small. He's making a small step. 
a small change. Some changes by God's grace through regeneration, through salvation are instant and can be big. But a lot of times in life, in the Christian life, our changes are small, small steps. And I I think this is part of this text is at, at least the brothers of Joseph are making some steps, even if it's a tiny one. He has a long ways to go, but he has to start somewhere. What about you? What steps should you take to to get right with God, to be pressing on with God, to be restored with God, to continue to grow in Christ-likeness, to have fruitfulness and fullness in your life? Even in, Even if it's a small step, what step do you need to take? And are you willing to take it? You've heard the cliche, I don't know if you call it a cliche, aphorism, I'm not sure what you call it, but how can you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Right? Small, small steps. Think about David and Goliath. The first thing that David did in his life was not, I'm going to go after this giant and kill him. The first thing that David did in his life was what? He had already fought and protected his sheep. He had already killed a lion and a bear. Right? I'm not saying that at times you don't have to jump out and kill a, quote, Goliath. But David also had taken some small steps. Sometimes in life, the best thing to do is to take a small step. If you want to hike the Cascades, go from the northern tip down to the southern tip, can you do it in one one day? No. How do you get started? Take a step. What step do you need to take? Take a small step. Small steps are better than what? No steps at all. Small steps are better than no steps at all. Because if it was me, I would probably just lay into Reuben and just be like, you are the worst dad I've ever heard in my life. I can't believe you would say that. Go to your tent. I would really get after him. But I think also what we see here, though, is this, and his heart, this, I, this time I'm going to do something. This time I have to do something. And it's a small step. Perhaps we can think about it this way. Perhaps you have a problem with language, with foul language. Not here at church, but at home. Can you change just one word? You know, maybe there's a couple bad words you say, five bad words you can say that you like to say. Take a small step. Can you just change one of them? Can you? Do you have enough power in Christ to not curse with one word? I think so. I think we all can. Maybe it's, it's anger. Maybe you're getting 
angry all the time? Can you pick the person that you love the most and decide that though you may disagree, you're not going to blow up at them? Can you do that? Can you, maybe you're going to say, I can't do that the rest of my life. Can you do that for one hour? From now until you get home. Can you? Especially in the car. Can you do that? Can you do it at home for one hour? Start with one hour. Can I not get angry at my spouse, at my kids, at my neighbor for one hour? And I'm not saying this to belittle us or anybody, but what I am saying is sometimes we want to eat the whole the whole entire elephant at once or make the whole hike in one day. Start small. Conquer one word. Conquer one greedy, lustful thought. There's grace for that. And then do it again. And then do it again. I think this is part of what this text is seeking to help the nation Israel and the church with. Do something, even if it's small. Even if it's, God, I want to improve and become more like Jesus. Help me to do that. That's a step. Saying that sincerely to God, that's a small step. Praise God. Well, there's at least a eighth and connecting pathway that we see in this text. And we'll take this as quick as we can. Because no time is fleeting. And it's this. Have hope. God loves sinners even when they don't deserve it. Is there any sinner that deserves God's love? Is there anybody here, do not raise your hand, is there anybody here that deserves God's love? Has there ever been anybody that deserved the love of God? Only one. (laughs) Jesus Christ. No other. And I think when we look at this passage... Though we don't see the explicit word here, we've seen the word in previous chapters, the Hebrew word chesed, that loving kindness, that loyal love, that covenantal love of God. And here, what you have in this chapter is you have these despicable brothers, but yet God is using Joseph to bring them back to God himself, and even to bless them, and even to bless them so they can be a blessing to their own nation, and even to bless us to preserve the line of Judah that we could have a Messiah. And to do that, God pursues in love these deceitful, diabolical, devious brothers of Joseph. It is a loving pursuit. It is tough love. But remember what it says in the book of Hebrews. God does what? He chastised those who? He chastised those that he loves. Not simply to punish them, but to correct them, to help them, to bring them back to himself. Now, God is love. For God 
not to love, he would have to ungod himself. Like, for God not to be righteous, he would no longer be God. That doesn't mean that there are not different degrees of God's love. If I may, with with reverence to God, using myself as an example, I love the neighbors across the street. I do. But I love my family a lot more than my neighbors across the street. There are different degrees of love. That is, God is showing love to the brothers of Joseph that he's not showing to all the land of Egypt. Doesn't mean he doesn't love Egypt at all, but he's showing a special love to the brothers of Joseph and the sons of Israel. And we find this in Scripture, and we won't spend much time here, but even if you were to look just a few books ahead, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, the Lord says to the people of Israel that would have been reading the book of Genesis, he says to them in Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath. God chose to love Abraham and Abraham's descendants because he wanted to to glorify himself, and to show how wonderful he is. And so we see then, even in Genesis 50, verse 20, we see this, again, not using the word love, but this kindness of God to love his people. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Again, this 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 whole story of really these evil brothers of Joseph is God through Joseph pursuing them with love to bring them back to himself in order to bless them and even to bless us. This is why it says in Hosea 14:4, which is the gospel, some say the gospel of John for the Old Testament, that the book of Hosea. Hosea 14:4 it says, "I will love them freely." Freely. I will love them. And Hosea is a book about how sinful Israel was. They were really incredibly sinful, and yet God is saying what? I will love you. I will love you. I will love you and pursue you with my love. Those that he elects and shows his special love on, God does have a general love. We see that in Matthew 5, where it talks about that God sends rain on the just and the unjust, certainly. But there is this special pursuing love that God has for those that are his. There's a song, He Would Never Let You Go. And it's because of his pursuing incredible, crazy love. Romans chapter 8, you're, you're familiar with this. Romans chapter 8, where he says in verse 32, He did not spare his own son for us, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? 
verse 38. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing would be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This incredible love of God, which can never be overcome by sin, by Satan, by trials, by death, by our own stubbornness. God's love will win and God's love will have victory. And as those that God has saved, we can never ever be separated from God's love. And I believe he's saying this to Israel in context of the book of Genesis and where where Israel was at when they received this book and for the church and for you and I today, especially with the death of Christ and his cross, Romans 5, 8, of course, you know, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and why yet we were sinners, Christ died for us. But before verse 8 comes in Romans 5, 5, it says, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out with our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. While yet we're sinners, Christ died for us. There is this subjective hope that we have because the Spirit of God communicates to believers, God loves me, which is objectively proven because Jesus died on the cross for all those who would trust him. He loves me. When I was in my most wicked state, that's when God saved me. And that's my hope, is this love of God, this love of Jesus. Jesus did not love me because I said, you know, one day I, I want to be a missionary. Okay, Tom, I'll love you then. One day I want to be a pastor. Okay, then uh, I'll love you. Lord, one day I, I will give up smoking marijuana and skipping church. Lord, getting to fights, I, I will give that all up. And it wasn't that God said, okay, then I will love you. The Bible says, before the foundation of the world, God chose and love to elect me. I will love Tom because I want to love Tom. There's nothing in me, there's nothing in you that impresses God so much where he's going to be, man, those people at Pilgrim Bible Church, they're so awesome, I'm going to die for them. But rather, God in his magnificent love, he chose to love us. And then he went to the cross for us. And so we give him praise and give him glory and honor. That's where our hope is. Our hope is in this love of God. That's what it is. What, what are we going to hope in? You're going to hope in a new election. You're going to hope in your health. You can't, even, you can't hope in your parents. You can't hope in your siblings. You can't hope in, in elders or pastors. You can't hope in a job. You can't hope in a car. What, they're all going to die. They're all going to fade away. They're all going to perish. But the love of God is what you can hope in. Well, our, our time is gone these are the different interconnecting pathways that we see in this passage of really being restored to God so we have fruitfulness and fullness in him. Father, we thank you for your word. 
But what a great passage. Thank you for the kind patience of this people, Lord. Bless them, Lord, with your presence. Bless them with your love. Bless them with your forgiveness, Lord. Bless them with fruitfulness and a fullness from you and in you that they've never, ever seen before because you are awesome, Lord. We give you glory and we give you thanks. Amen.